Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 74. Today we spoke to Michael Townsend Williams, co-founder and CEO at Do Breathe, coach and author. How is life complicated was his initial answer. Michael sheds light on the collective unknown, but also excitement going on in the world at the moment. We talk about his initial job in advertising, alcohol problems, mobile marketing, and a transformational experience and what happened next. Michael found yoga as a way to connect with his inner world. He talks about well-doing, well-being, doing and direction, which is a model for mindfulness, yoga and breathing as part of his portfolio of work. Improve well-being whilst performing and doing more. He's constantly exploring the dance between excessive doing and excessive being. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Hi, welcome to Sleepy Perform Repeat. We're joined on the line by Michael Townsend Williams. I'm going to pass you over to David. We'll introduce you to Michael. So very much looking forward to speaking to Michael today, who is a coach, an author, a speaker, has a book called Do Breathe, and really looking forward to hearing all about Michael's story to date and um, what he's doing also in these couple of weeks through this Difficult period, I suppose, is one way to put it. So, so Michael, how is life? Thank you very much for taking your time to speak to us today. Um, complicated. <laughs> like anything complicated, you have to pivot and adapt. So what have you managed to do in, in that space? Well, I guess um, most days I have a kind of multi-layered experience of life, like many of us. So um, in some respects, I feel calmer. I'm not rushing around. I live in the south of France, and normally I'm flying around a lot doing workshops and coaching and things. So to to not move around a bit has been, well, after after about three weeks, I was fed up, and I, I couldn't, be, couldn't wait to move around. But actually, um, now kind of 10 weeks later, I'm feeling good being in one kilometer from where I live most days and um, yeah so I feel quite calm and quite grounded in lots of ways but then obviously um, what's going on out in the world is um, sometimes deeply exciting and moving lots of things in the right direction and at other times deeply concerning and um, and we've never experienced as a collective unknown all at the same time so um yeah um i guess you know i have i have my moods like everyone sometimes it's um all doom and gloom but but mostly i think uh it's going to nudge us all in 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 better directions so i feel i feel optimistic and i'm probably doing things that you know i've been putting off of suddenly doing again and um yeah i think it's for me at the moment a positive experience albeit a complicated and challenging one very good. And what have you learned the most about this period that maybe is something you'd like to hold on to and maybe work more with when this all does settle and you can venture further afield than one kilometre from your, your place in the south of France? Well, um, 
part of me part of me doesn't want to anymore. <laughs> I think um, uh, when I used to read things from you know people talking about the climate crisis and the need for us all to travel less and hunker down and kind of make make things work uh, uh, closer to home. Um, although I'm obviously a, a very pro um, climate change person, I, I, that did that, that did rile me a little bit, and I did kind of associate myself as being someone that likes um, moving around a lot. And although that is still there, um, I'm realizing actually staying put and um, and actually maybe facing some of the dis- difficult, uncomfortable things that go on inside, rather than maybe keeping myself. Uh, busy uh, has been really, really good. So I guess I'm, the, I'm not going to rush around as much. Yeah, I think it's it's a big thing, isn't it? Like the world has nearly pressed pause, as it were. And sometimes what what we have seen and what we've learned from speaking to several people the last couple of weeks is the fact that now is an opportunity for us all to slow down and, and I suppose appreciate what what is really important and what what yes. what we can't what we can't take for granted. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that um, for me, it's like the great recalibration. And when I first started um, yoga practice way way over 20 years ago, um, as I first started to slow down my breathing and my body, um, I found it really fucking irritating. (laughs) You know, because I was so... um, used to uh, a very stimulated environment and um and coming back to a kind of a normal uh, balanced uh, place uh, felt so other to me it felt uncomfortable so i think there's a, i think there's a, there's a great recalibration going on and hopefully people will um recognize those sweet spots you know between you know pushing too hard and and not pushing at all and um yeah, and I think that's happening through all levels of society, from very, very young children up to to, to um, people uh, towards the end of their lives. Excellent. Let's jump back before this pandemic and let's talk about your journey to what got you to be an author, a coach, a speaker. Give us a bit of insight about yeah. your journey today. Yeah, I, I guess um, this will obviously be a pocketed version. Um, my first career was in um, advertising, so I worked for big global ad agencies. And um, if, I, if I'm honest, I had one stress coping strategy in those days, and that was to drink rather a lot. So I was lucky again um, in 1995 that my girlfriend at the time, who was pregnant with our first child, um, gave me an ultimatum and said, you know, you know I don't want uh, you to have to be the father of this child if you're going to carry on being a uh, a hedonistic, selfish pig, I think were her words at the time. And so um, I stopped drinking over 25 years ago. So I've been sober for just over 25 years. Um, and um, that was the kind of first big shift for me, because I guess, you know, um, when you take away something you've been addicted to, you get left with all those deeply uncomfortable feelings that you've been anesthetizing yourself against um and i was you know in a, a, a big job at the time i was creative services director of a big american ad agency um had a young child was a recovering alcoholic and on november the 2nd 1998 i had a phone call from kuala lumpur 
telling me that my younger brother, Jonathan, who was 31 at the time, had fallen from a 15th floor balcony and had died on impact. Um, so in that moment, I had, um, I guess, an emotional breakdown, uh, uh, which would be to be expected. But I also had a transformational experience, which I didn't really realize the sort of significance of at the time. So I felt like a rod of iron going up my spine was the way I explained it. And I felt that I had some superpower to deal with this um, awful um, tragedy. So I had to you know, fly out to Kuala Lumpur and you know, bring my bro brother's body back and bring his affairs back. And in fact, the first time I spoke publicly was at his um, funeral in 1998. So again, that was the, the second big shift um, for me. So I was sober, um, I was raw. Um, and in the moment, actually, I was told my brother died, as well as having an emotional breakdown and feeling this rod of iron going up my spine. I also had this very clear kind of almost like a lightning strike thought in my head. And that was, you know, what the fuck are you doing in advertising? And, uh, <laughs> um, and I've spoken in ad agencies. And as I say that, everybody kind of you know, tries to nod without their boss seeing them. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, so I kind of just thought, you know, you know, life can be incredibly short. You know, I'm having a, a lot of fun in advertising and it's creative and, and it's interesting in lots of ways, but uh, it can't be my life's work. In fact, the thought of, you know, um, dying uh, and that being my legacy was, was quite terrifying. So I knew that I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I didn't know what I did want to do. Um, and so I, I went to my first ever yoga class um, that I've been putting off for about 10 years. And yoga became my way, I guess, of dealing with the, the uh, re recovery from alcohol, the depression and grief around my brother's death, and also enabled me to connect to how I felt about things. And I think like a lot of men, you know, I kind of tried to think my way, way through life and I'd lost complete contact with my body and my feelings and, and um, my inner world. And so yoga became my thing. It wasn't something I thought of uh, as, as a career. Uh, I bought all the books that you buy on personal development, trying to find the life that you're born to do, the, you know, following your heart, all these things. And, and nothing came up, you know, really. I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I had, through my yoga practice, become uh, better at uh, distinguishing between feelings and sensations and experience and how we react to experience and feelings and sensations and how the way that we react completely changes the nature of what's going on. And, and as you learn in yoga to do that, suddenly that really uh, hard muscle that's you know tight and, and uh, as a man, you're trying to force your way to stretch it. Somehow you, you connect to that ability that the body has that actually when you let go and you stop pushing, that uh, things start opening up. And I was on an alternative family holiday, actually, with my two young children. And uh, one of the highlights of the week would be the parents would get some yoga while the kids were looked after. And, and the yoga teacher didn't turn up. And a little voice in my head just said to me, why don't you go and teach the yoga class? And um, uh, before I could stop myself, uh, all the people around me said, oh, that's great. At least we can do some yoga now. And I, and I thought, well, what, what have I done here? I'm not a yoga teacher, even though I've done quite a bit of it. So I went into the room and I lay down the mat and I lit a candle and some incense. And I just got that wonderful feeling inside of like, wow, this is what I want to do. You know, this is this is what I want to do. This feels so good doing this. Um, so I so I told my wife that that's what I wanted to do. 
And um, she had a voice very similar to the kind of inner critic in my mind and, and said, you know, how can you possibly, you know, give up a, a really high paid job? We've got two young children. We've got a mortgage. You know, you can't do this. But I think when you feel a, a calling deep within, then you just know you have to do it anyway. So I became... I trained as a yoga teacher, actually, at the same time as I was involved in a mobile marketing tech startup. So I was involved in kind of mobile marketing about four years before the iPhone. So I think I, the, the first ever meeting of the mobile marketing uh, uh, association was three of us in a pub. Um, but that business folded <laughs> at the, that business folded at the same time as I trained as a yoga teacher. So I picked up the phone to the bank, got a loan, you know, took the mortgage on to interest-free and um, become a yoga teacher. So I, I moved from a world of, I guess, of obsessive doing, always on the go in advertising, to the life as a yoga teacher, always um, chilled and into being all the time. I moved out to near Bath and brought up my family teaching yoga and meditation to companies, individuals, and all over the place, really. But, but, but into about 10 years into teaching yoga, I kind of realized I also liked, liked doing stuff. And so I slowly got into productivity systems and I created a model called well-doing, bringing together well-being, doing, and direction. And that kind of became a coaching model. And then I created mindfulness course, um, the biofeedback, breathing at BreatheSync, and then wrote, wrote the book and, and now do a kind of portfolio of all these kind of things really in that area of well-doing. So, you know, looking um, uh, improving your well-being whilst you perform and, and produce more. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the, the slant I have is because I've come from a, a obsessive doing to obsessive being. I understand the extremes and uh, I understand the dance between these things, um, I, I hope. Excellent. And just based on current culture and maybe before the pandemic started, what do you think the biggest challenges people working in spaces like advertising, marketing, in these big companies, what were they facing? Um, well, I haven't worked in advertising since 2002, so it has moved on and changed. But I think that the, the, what applies to advertising applies to pretty much uh, most businesses. And that's, you know, that everyone's sitting down behind a computer screen for eight hours and going tappity tap and thinking that's work. <laughs> and... Um, and so I think the, the, the thing that um, me is a problem is, is people, you know, just working behind screens. And um, in my experience um, working on my own is that, um, you know, I don't know anybody that has the choice would sit, sit, and sit down behind a computer screen all day. So um, don't want to oversimplify it, but I think, yeah, it's technology. I mean, people are just spending, you know, spending far much too time on technology at work, technology at home, technology for entertainment. Yeah. Like it's, it's funny. I, I see all that in my son. Like my son is turning three in a couple of months and yeah, I can remember when I was a little younger, I, I wasn't sitting in front of the TV that much or in front of an iPad that much. And I'm looking at him and I'm kind of going, we're doing pretty well with a lot of things, but God, I wish she didn't spend so much time in front of a screen, kind of nearly adopting what would be something we are doing, you know, in work sometimes. And I'm going, that's not, that's not how we should be starting off, is it? Yeah, well, I think I have mixed feelings on it because I think that um, depending what children are using technology for, obviously they can learn and do incredible things with it. So I'm not kind of anti-technology, but I just think that the... Um, 
there's become this pervasive thing in businesses, you know, where they think that offices, whatever business they're in, are tables with rows of computers on and people sit behind them and the work is what happens behind the computer screen. And yes, that might be true in some digital only businesses, but um, I think that you know, conversation and thinking and playing um, and th- things that actually children naturally do if left, left alone um, are as important, if not more important than what you do on, on the technology. So I wouldn't make technology the bad, the bad thing with a, with a young child, because if you make it a bad thing, they'll want it more. Um, I think left to their own devices, you know, um, well, this is the thing, left to their own devices, but behind the other screen is a, is a company that's created some game that is designed to keep them there. So for me, there's this um, sort of dual approach that's needed. One, we need to learn self-control, um, but equally, there needs to be um, legislation that, that makes it illegal for you know, companies to get children or adults addicted to using their, their products. Now, um, Michael, I'd like you to just share with the listeners a little bit about, about your, your book and that, mm-hmm. and that kind of company and, and do and what, what that's all about, the ethos around it and where it kind of came from. Because yeah. A lot of people here in Ireland probably haven't heard of it. Kiran hadn't. I, I sent him some yeah. of it, and yeah, it's, it, it was it, really it, interesting. Yeah, it's it, it's quite a niche thing that, uh, um, uh, and and the way it came about is, is I wasn't in, I'm I'm not involved in the do lectures. You know, so to be to be clear, I've spoken there, and I have a book book published by a company that that work with them. But the do lectures was founded by someone that I work with in advertising called David Hyatt, and. Um, the way it came about, he was founded with a business called Howie's, which is a sort of funky um, skate kind of uh, fashion brand. And he sold it to Timberland. And he wanted to always put 1% towards the planet. But rather than giving it to someone else, he set up the Do Lectures with the 1%. And the Do Lectures uh, started off as a t- in a tent in Wales. And it's now in his, his uh, own shed on his uh, farm in Cardigan. And 20 speakers speak every year to an audience of 80 people in a, in, in a, in a shed. And um, it's a very intimate experience. Uh, the, the speakers range from you know, people like Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the internet, Michael Acton-Smith, founder of Calm, um, but also um, people maybe growing vegetables low. In fact, the, the Irish guy I met there who I love is Fergal Smith. Do you know Fergal Smith, a surfer? So Fergal was like a world, you know, world-class surfer who decided to jack uh, in the surfing circuit to go and grow vegetables off the west coast of Ireland. Um, so, so, so it's a really eclectic mix of people doing good things in the world. And um, I spoke there in 2014, and the book company basically invite people who have spoken to do books about what they speak about and and the speakers are always trying to share the real reality of getting things done in life so they're not glossy ted talks making it all look very uh, uh easy they're people really sharing the 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 the, 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 the real human story and um, and the books are, again, you know, they are practical books. They're always called Do Something. Mine's called Do Breathe, Calm Your Mind, Find Focus, Get Stuff Done. They're, they're practical, but they're not like a, they're not just simple how-to guides. The author um, will interject their life and their experience of what they're talking about. So they're very human, I would say. 
Um, and, and their belief is that, you know, the, the biggest challenges we face as uh, individuals and organizations is getting things done. You know, I mean, it's like we talk about stuff, but we have great ideas. But the difference between, you know, success and failure is often, you know, it's very rarely in the idea, it's in the execution. And so it's all about execution, actually doing stuff rather than just talking about it. Well, that was a very good answer. Um, no, do do breathe. What it, what is what is in that? If somebody was, yeah, what, so, what's, what's the essence of it, your yeah, piece. So, so, yeah, so, so I think the, the 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 thing I talked about earlier, this inner philosophy that I have called well doing. Uh, I think before I came to that uh, concept for myself, and it's not a new thought; it's just my own expression of it. You know, I felt I felt that um, productivity and getting things done. Um, was on one end of a spectrum and looking after your mental health and well-being was on the other. So there was no way of you know, looking after your mental health and well-being without actually doing less. And, 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 and work was the sort of uh, uh, the problem. And, and what I realized in my own work was actually, you know, there's an interplay between these things. And so the, the book is structured in such a way, there's three parts. The first part is about preparation, the, the middle part about uh, practice and the last part about performing and each chapter kind of has a, a what I call a soft thing about being and then something about doing and it kind of oscillates from one to the other in a slightly uncomfortable way sometimes so for example the first chapter will be all about connecting to your breath and using your breath to feel calm and relaxed and then the next chapter is about being organized and so it's designed, I know there'll be people that'll be really calm and relaxed and they'll want more cozy stuff. And then suddenly they're hit, they've got to get more organized. Hmm. Um, but, but, but actually it's true. There's no point in learning how to breathe and relax if, you know, actually your mind and your, and, and your work is all over the place. And it talks about courage, um, it talks about energy, mindfulness, focus, flow, habits. But it's trying to understand the, 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 the dynamics of life in a way. So that actually I think that all too often we think the answer is to do that and actually the answer is to do this and that in the right kind of um balance i have i have an interesting question for you you're you're someone who's been through a lot you know thanks for the openness of that story as to why you became a yogi that that interesting story about you kind of just lying down and then yeah. and, and then starting and and you're still going um i was asked an interesting question recently and i, I couldn't really answer it and it was Say in the next couple of months, David, the world is changing drastically. What what are what are the young people kind of missing that maybe should be in their their education, or maybe should be you know what are the schools are the schools missing something to help to help well, with, with my son and any older yeah. children to build up that resilience? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, I'm I'm mentor for a children's charity called um, the Inside Out. And the, the you know, talking to them and the teachers and the head teachers they're talking to, it's very clear that we have to put mental health and well-being of our children first. Yeah. So if that means them not taking exams or not learning other things, then so be it. Yeah. So that's a sort of simple answer. Um, I think. Um, the, the education system, a bit like the health system and pretty much every other systems that we have in, in society are all pretty fundamentally flawed. Um, all academics know that they don't do what they're designed to do. Um, 
so I think for yeah for children we have you know I mean it's a bit like life isn't it I mean you know if you if you talk to adults about what's difficult in life and uh, you know and did your education prepare you for any of it the answer is always no yeah or I'd say ninety percent of the times no yeah? yeah yeah and so I mean I've done workshop you know workshops with head teachers and you know if you're working in a team of people or a company one of the first things that you do with the team before you work out what to do is you agree on what's the purpose yeah what's the purpose of the team yeah and then once you've agreed the purpose of the team the team can move ahead and knows what they're doing if you ask a group of head teachers what's the purpose of education they will probably all give you slightly different answers. If you asked, I don't know, head, uh, Minister of Education in Ireland or UK or anywhere, what is the purpose of education? They struggle to answer it. But surely that's the most fundamentally important question that they have to be able to answer, right? And everyone exactly. needs to be able to answer. Yeah, because if you, if, you can't, if you can't answer that question, you can't make any judgment <laughs> at yeah. all. So, so, so that's where the problem lies, is that no one will have that difficult conversation. Because it is a difficult conversation, but, it, but, but, but you have to have that difficult conversation to come up with a, a purpose that makes sense. And then you've got an idea of how to change things. Um, but it also happens with, you know, I don't know, with human beings in general in the workplace. You know, if you're left to your own devices, you know, working from home, you're not going to work nine to five with a one hour lunch break. That's not natural human behavior. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So why don't we design work and education and health around what we know about human behavior? It's not really that complicated. We don't you know. So, so everybody gets very clever about stuff, but um, you know, I, I just I just see the, the the fundamental problem. If you don't solve the fundamental problem, the systems don't change. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's just take it at a different angle there, Michael. That, that was very interesting. What's what's going on for you now? Next, like, what's the next project? What what are the next kind of pieces that you're working on or doing over the next months, year, two years? Yeah, I guess um, what I've always tried to do internally is have a overarching mission or purpose that enables me to fail at lots of things and still stay on track hmm. so, so my well. kind of, you know so my overarching mission is to get the world breathing better um and that and at the moment you know i do that through a number of things so i have the book so the book has now sold over twenty-five thousand copies it's published in the uk the u.s Germany and France and gets published later this year in Spanish so I don't really do much pushing for the book but people obviously get in contact and I do talks and workshops around the book so the book is one thing um, the, the second thing is BreatheSync so BreatheSync is a free app on the iPhone that is a HRV biofeedback breathing app so it gets your breathing rhythm into an optimal state and gives you a measurement of your HRV that we call WQ. Um, but that's a free app on the App Store that, if I'm very honest, is very buggy. So it's kind of like a public prototype. So if you want to have a play around and don't mind it going wrong a bit, that's out there for free. Um, but we've raised a bit of money and we've got an improved version of that, which is available for beta testing uh, at dobreathe.com. So I've got the book, I've got the app. Um, I am a 
coach. So I actually earn probably most of my money coaching individuals, teams and organizations. And I do that under this sort of idea of uh, a well-doing. So I'll go into companies and, and sometimes they think the problems about well-being, but actually it's the problem isn't. It's a problem of um, purpose and lack of direction. So, you know, if, if, if I work with someone, they're stressed, I don't go, they're stressed, they need to slow down their breathing, everything will be fine. I go, they're stressed, there will be a problem uh, in the well-doing matrix. So that stress is either coming from a lack of sense of purpose and meaning and direction, or it'll come because they're overwhelmed and overloaded and they're not managing their workflow or their life flow, or they have, you know, they're not looking after their physical and mental, mental well-being. And usually it's a combination of all of those things. So... Um, coaching work, you know, uh, uh, can vary from a three-day offsite with a brand to a retreat to a workshop, and obviously in that area, I'm really interested in developing some virtual experiences. So already, I've done live Zoom, live YouTube type of things for clients and for the do lectures, and I've done workshops with small teams of people, helping them get clarity on how to manage the crisis. And so, yeah, I see myself doing doing more of um, that kind of calm down, get clear about what you need to do and, 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 and get going, because I think a lot of people feel stuck. Um, and then as well as that, you know, I'm talking to people about um, documentary films around breathing. Um, yeah, you name it around breathing. Some, someone somewhere there was some kind of project going on. But my, my focus is to sort of... Yeah, raise raise people's awareness of the power of the breath. Um, realize that that the stress is a very complex thing, and and you need to understand what you mean by the word before you start talking about trying to improve things. Breathing. What does it all really boil down to? If I need to take a pearl of wisdom from you when I'm going back to my car and going home later on today, mm. how can I improve? So, so the way that I, I would slightly reframe your question, David, and that and, and someone asked me this once, you know, if you were on your deathbed and you had your children there and they wanted, you know, your last words of wisdom, what would you say to them? And so this is what I would say. I would say, breathe from your belly. Because if you breathe from your belly, it's more energy efficient. You have more control. Breathe in and out through the nose because your nose is designed for breathing, you can control the flow more easily in and out through the nose. And breathe slowly and deeply. And actually for my children, I said, and remember with every breath you take, I'm there with you, yeah? That's very good. Speaking about the coach, and I read stuff about how you'd said the importance of having a priority, not priorities, and you'd say about, (laughs) or should think, you know, what I can do, where I am with the tools I've got. I thought yes. that was very interesting. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so a very common thing when you work with clients is they're, they're, uh, or individuals, is they're, their problems are that they've got too many priorities, they say. There's too many things they've got to do. And I just remind them that priority, uh, uh, the word means one thing. You can only actually have one priority. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you've got more than one priority, they're not priorities. <laughs> so so but, you know, um, uh, the kind of technique that I would use with people is I basically, you know, they'll dump all their priorities onto the table. Um, I will then normally get them into a relaxed 
place because I think when you're relaxed and you're calm, you tend to be able to to see things more clearly and connect to how they make you feel. And I look at those priorities and maybe kind of get it down to three, you know, um, and and then maybe you know, um, normally talking with them about trying to get to the, you know if, they, if 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 there was only one thing that you could do in the next day, what would it be? So you try to get them to what the priority is, and it, and sometimes it's not the most important thing, but you get them to the one priority. And some of the sometimes I'll explain it by you know if 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 you've got to go and pick up nine people from nine different airports tomorrow morning at nine a.m. right what are you going to do that and that's what it feels like to choose a priority you can't do them all you have to make a choice yeah otherwise you don't pick any of them off so once you get down to that one thing um what, what i then do is uh to work out what it is an achievable outcome that will that will solve that or or, or help that priority in the next couple of weeks you know? So what is an outcome? And and the outcome, you know, again, you know, most people's answer to that, I will interrogate a number of times because it's normally a bit fuzzy. And then I'll say to them, what's the very next action you need to take towards that thing? And again, in my experience of working with hundreds of you know, CEOs and people, very few people can answer that question correctly. Yeah? So what most people, um, most people have too many priorities they then don't even know what outcomes they want from those priorities. And then they have a list of things that they could do about those priorities. But most of the things haven't been worked out. So when they look at it, none of it's doable. Most people's to-do lists aren't doable. So once you've got down to the, the very next action, I mean, an example would be someone say, okay, the next action is to call Frank. And then I go, okay, well, call Frank. Oh, I can't call Frank. Why can't you call Frank? Oh, I don't know what to say to him. Why don't you know what to say to him? Oh, because I didn't read something. Yeah. And then you find, oh, so the next thing you got to do is to read that thing, not call him. But but that, that little dialogue that I'm doing now is a, is a dialogue that you need to cultivate inside your own head. And some some people manage to get there, some people don't. Um, but that's what I mean by priority. At the end of the day, you know, in in the next minute, there's only you can only do one thing. You know, so you want to make sure that one thing is towards the thing that you think is the most important. And then when, when you then when you get into the knack of it, actually, I can move around priorities because once I've got that priority moving, actually, it's not a priority anymore. <laughs> so I can move on to something else. Yeah. It becomes the next priority. Yeah, that's very good. It sort of triangulates your focus. You build a self-awareness but, but- of what's but again, where people tend to go wrong with it is they, they over-systemize it. So they kind of like try to list list everything by priority and, and want to go through it in a particular order. And it's not really like that because you change your mind and your mood. Yeah. So you, you need to have these kind of rules and um, syst- systematic approaches. But at the same time, also have, a, have this openness to actually maybe you might change your mind and don't kind of over-plan and overwork, overwork stuff out. Excellent. Michael Townsend Williams, thank you very much for your time. David, pleasure, Kieran. I can't find it hard to say Kieran. I, I can't. <laughs> I've been called many things. I lived in London for six years. So oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're used to it. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. Michael, everybody that comes on this podcast, we always ask a simple question to close it. And yeah. um, what, what does high performance mean to you? Feeling good. Feeling good doing the right thing for the right reasons. 
Love it. Nice. We were we were giving you a little bit of time after that dramatic pause there. So you were giving me a bit of time because you weren't very impressed by the first. We both knew something else. You, you, yeah, you, you were just holding on there. Saying, oh my god, he's just he's we, really couldn't, we couldn't. We couldn't see it. You couldn't so believe it. Know. You were speechless, weren't you? You were speechless. You know, he did so well for the for the first we twenty nine minutes. You you were breathless. Yeah. <laughs> Wishing you all the best. Stay fit, stay healthy. Thank you very yeah. much for your time today. You we both learned a lot. Really yeah. Stay well, guys. Thanks a million, Michael. Cheers. Good luck. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A-Life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen, others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.